thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the dark? Why do animals not understand you? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientist with me, Sue Marchant and Dave Ansell. First of all, Dave, a question for the Naked Scientist. Are digital cameras now better at seeing things than the human eye? Good one. Depends what you mean by better. I think now the resolution, which is how many, how essentially, if you saw two two pieces of wire, how small you could still tell the difference that they were two, still tell there were two pieces of wire close to each other rather than just one merging into each other. How close you can get those two bits of wire before they merge into each other? I think probably digital cameras are getting better than the eye now. The actual resolution is better than the eye, definitely around the edges because you you have quite good resolution on your eye right in the middle. Because if mm. you ever noticed, you can see things where, exactly where you're looking really well, but everything else. Is kind of a bit fuzzy and you yeah. don't really pay attention to it. I think you, now digital cameras are probably getting so the resolution is as good as directly on um, the middle of the eye. What they're not quite as good at as the eye in is in the different light levels. So your eye is very good at dealing with if you've got something very bright on one side of your vision and very dim in the other. So it, you know, sort of looking into a dark hole or something, your, your eyes likely to be better than a digital camera is doing that. And also, they can't deal with very, very low light levels very well. So there's things which you can see with your eyes, which you can't see with a camera. Like we did a kitchen science, I think it was last weekend, whereby you charge up a balloon and wave it near an energy-saving light bulb, and the energy-saving light bulb glows. And you can see that really well with your eyes, but a camera won't see it. So definitely at low light levels, your eyes are better. You can have special digital cameras with image intensifiers, the sort of night sights which the army uses and things which will mean that you can see, that those cameras can see in very, very low light levels. But even then, your eyes are better at dealing with both very low light levels and very high light levels, so mm. very bright and very dark. It's got sort of the biggest range of light levels you can see. Mm. Helen has called in. Um, Dr Dave, I was looking out of my window last night and I noticed that the moon seemed to be um, shaped like a rugby ball. Can you tell me why this is? It was a gorgeous moon last night, actually, Dave. Indeed. Um, okay, so first of all, why does the moon change shape? Because I can. Um, basically, the moon is, is a ball and the sun's on one side of it. So half of it, so half of it's going to be lit up by the sun. The sort of half of it pointing towards the sun. It's going to be lit up and really bright and the other half is going to be dark. And then depending on which part of the moon we look at, um, that then depends what, what it looks like. So if it's, if it's between us and the sun, we see the back of it, which is dark. If it's on the opposite side of us to the sun, then we'll see the side of it, which is bright, and that's a full moon. And then if, you're sort of, if it's sort of 90 degrees to uh, the sun, then we'll see half of it um, light and half of it dark. Now, if it's half, somewhere between a half moon and a full moon, then it'll sort of be a three-quarter moon, in which case you'll sort of have one, half, one side of the moon will look at its normal curve, and the other side will be a curve which is a bit sharper than normal. It'll be taller than it is wide. So basically, because it's halfway between a half moon and a full moon, you kind of get, a, you get a sort of rugby ball shape. 
Okay, all right, makes sense to me. Uh, another one here from Tony. I'm going to be getting a computer soon, he says, and I'm looking to get the internet. What I wanted to know is what is the difference between broadband and conventional internet, um, i.e. what does it do that previous did not? It's quite confusing if you don't know about it, isn't it? So, Dave, go on. Okay. <laughs> so, basically, the internet is a way of transferring information from one place to another. In fact, from lots of places to lots of other places. It's lots of little pipes for information to get move around, so that information could be all sorts of things. It could be sort of web pages, it could be music, it could be sort of scientific results, and you could just move that around as information. You turn it into a whole series of ones and zeros, send it down these um, pipes for information. The pipes can be all sorts of different things. They can be bits of wire, which you send signals down, or um, sort of fibre optics. They can even be satellites links but basically it's pipes for information now the difference between a broadband connection and the conventional internet connection is basically how big that pipe is so how much information you can get through every second so a sort of conventional internet you can maybe get sort of 30 or 40,000 ones or zeros through every second mm. whereas a broadband you can get maybe a few million ones and zeros through every second so a, a bit is a one or zero and so a kilobit is a thousand ones of these and a megabit is a million of them so uh, broadband can do a couple of million bits a second. With that, you can probably watch sort of sort of fairly slightly grainy video continuously running through it, as mm. long as there's not a hold up somewhere else in the system. Mm. And you can listen to audio quite comfortably on it, so because that has less information every second because it's, it's just speech, not the speech and the pictures. So whereas with a conventional internet connection, you could probably just about listen to streaming audio coming down, but you certainly couldn't watch a video live. You'd have to download it over a few hours and then watch it. Mm. all at once mm. so it's basically how fast you can move the information you can do all the same things they'll just take longer with the conventional internet rather than the broadband so do you think broadband is best Dave? i like it because i, I do a lot of stuff i mean it basically depends what you want to do if yeah. you're if you're wanting to do lots of things and you get annoyed about it for it taking ages to download a web page then broadband is wonderful yeah if you if you just want to check your email then you probably don't need it yeah all right tony we hope that answers your question now, Dr. Dave, Daniel says, my question this week is, why do some chemicals stain and some don't? Absolutely good one. Well, there's all sorts of reasons why something might stain. Basically, a stain is a colour, which is something coloured. Something to stain to start with, it's got to be coloured. So if a chemical doesn't have any colour at all, then it, I mean, it may stick to your clothes, but you won't notice it because it's invisible. Um, and then it's got to be able to stick to the fibres of your clothes. Um, now, it could do this chemically. I mean, I think things like iodine stain really horribly because they actually kind of chemically attach to, definitely attach to starch. They probably, I don't know if they do attach to cellulose, but you definitely do get some chemicals which will actually stick to the cellulose. In, mm. um, the cellulose makes up the fibres in things like cotton. Other things stain, stain, if you get very, very, very fine particles, they can kind of get in between the fibres and just get lodged there. And washing it for ages and ages and ages won't help very much. Mm. The normal way that people try and get rid of stains is by adding a bleach. Mm. Now, what a bleach is, is it, it's a, got a, a chemical which contains oxygen. And a lot of the coloured compounds are quite vulnerable to attack from oxygen. So if you leave something outside a long time, basically the oxygen will attack it and break down the coloured compounds first on average. Sure. And so they, they tend things to get, so before the clothes fall apart, then the colours disintegrate so that so it still goes nice and white. 
some things though aren't vulnerable to this at all so if you get iron oxide sort of rust type stains on your clothes mm. that's already oxidized it's and it's red when it's oxidized and attacking it with more oxygen isn't going to do you any good at all so that won't help so bleach on rust isn't going to get do you any good at all mm. lemon juice is quite good for some stains though some which stains is it if you've left your jeans in to soak for a long time and you get like a rust from your zip, you've got metal yeah. zip, sometimes it'll get that out. It takes a lot of perseverance. <laughs> because, yeah, an acid will possibly do the opposite, have some yeah. of the opposite effect yeah. to um, the bleach. And yeah. in fact, if you redu- reduce the amount of oxygen in the iron, it will tend to be less staining and yeah. you might come out in solution. Yeah. All right. OK, we hope that answers that question. Now, Mike in Peterborough says, Dr. Dave, how do they paint the keel of a pre-launch new ship when there are support beams, hydraulics and chains, etc., all in the way? Do you I can make a fairly educated guess. Um, I would have thought the obvious way to do it would be, you know, you, you hold, you've got to hold the ship up in a certain number of places, otherwise it falls down. You just kind of move the places where you're holding it and paint in between. I mean, that was a big issue when they did build ships from the keel up um, with all the bits on the ship. These days they tend to build ships in kind of a bit like Lego. I saw some wonderful videos of this, um, especially in the really big shipyards in South Korea. They kind of build ships. They sort of have a whole lot of factories which build bits of ship, sort of 500-ton bits of ship, um, sort of big blocks, a bit like Lego blocks. And they just kind of have huge cranes and just move them together and then weld them together. So the the bits which you're... The, pre-made bits are already painted and then you just move them in and, and sort of tack and weld them together but even then you're going to want to put some more paint over the bottom of that and so yes i think the only way you could do it is by just moving the support so you paint one bit where the support isn't then wait till that's dry and move the supports across paint the bit where the support was last time i think it's probably as simple as that <laughs> All right, then, OK, you think it is. If you say so, Dave, <laughs> that's the case. Not but necessarily. If anyone make, knows any better, it please does tell me. Yes, please do, indeed. Now, Kenny Knockley says, Hi, Sue. Hi, Dave. I have an old shower head I haven't used for around three years. I read a case about a man catching legionnaires from an old shower head. Is there any chance mine could be contaminated? And if so, what do I do to decontaminate it? Um, I mean, it depends where it's being. Um, I'm, I, I'm not a doctor, so I wouldn't sure. so I'm preface everything I say with that. I'm not an expert on the subject, um, so don't sue me if you do catch it fundamentally. I think basically Legionnaire's disease, it's a bacteria. It grows in water. It's a big problem in things like cooling towers where yeah. you've got lots of water moving around, nice warm temperatures, sort of 20, 30, 40, 30, 20, 30, 40 degrees centigrade. It loves it. It grows, it multiplies, and then it can cause some nasty diseases. Mm. Um, if if you breathe it in. Um, so you tend to breathe it in from sort of fine sprays. Like sometimes it gets into air conditioning systems. I would have thought that definitely if the shower head, um, if, the, if there's water running through the shower head all the time, that's not a problem because the, the bacteria doesn't have enough time to start growing. It just gets washed out with new water, which has got chlorine in it, which is a bleach and will tend to, um, again, it will oxidise the bacteria and kill the bacteria in the same way as it was oxidising the colours, which you were talking about earlier. Mm. Um, if the shower head has been dry, I'd be very, very, very surprised if anything's been growing in it. Um, you could just conceivably have a problem if you had a shower which was attached to the mains, attached to the water, it just been sitting there full of water but without any water flowing through it for three years. And th- then you'd have a nice... Um, then the chlorine, the bleach would slowly get used up and the chlorine would evaporate out and you'd just be left with um, water which um, bacteria in general could grow in. Um, but if it's dried out, I don't think there's a problem at all. Mm. How dangerous is limescale in water? Because some think, you know, water is very hard, isn't it? Um, limescale 
I mean, it's perfectly safe. It's um, basically calcium carbonate. It's lime. It's actually limestone, right. um, and it's uh, limestone dissolved in the rock, mm. in in the water because it's the water's coming, especially around here. It's coming out of chalk, mm. which is a form of limestone. It's dissolved in the water, and then um, it actually gets dissolved in carbonic acid, which is from carbon dioxide. Makes a very weak acid, mm. dissolves away the limestone. And then when it in the um, shower head or in your bar, some of that carbon dioxide gets it's get released, and then the um, lime limestone what does can't be dissolved anymore because there's not enough acid. Mm. And it just kind of um, sort of precipitates out. It forms little lumps uh, all over surfaces and things. Mm. Um, it, and it, it itself is perfectly safe. I mean, it's just like if you're eating chalk, you can eat it perfectly fine. Can you? Um, yeah, I mean, you can eat chalk. It, I mean, it's it used. To, I mean, it's a um, if you got heartburn, emulsifier and stuff, isn't it? Yeah. It, it, uh, it um, it's, it's, it's a um, base, so it will but counteract yes. heartburn. Yeah. Because um, if you've got too much acid in your stomach, if you eat chalk, then it will, um, then it will uh, cancel it out. Yeah. Um, and so the your stomach will get less acid, and so it'll hurt less. Yeah. Um, so you can eat it absolutely fine. The only possible problem you might get is because it makes the surface more rough. It gives more little places for things to live. So things like if you've got lime scale on a surface, then things like fungi and uh, moulds and bacteria will grow better on it because it's a lot more places. Is when you tr- try and clean it, you can't clean it as well because there's all these little holes sure, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. pits. But it itself is perfectly safe. Textured stuff. Uh, Gerald has sent an email in to say, um, Hi Sue, I wondered if modern motion sensors are fast enough to light up a street when motion is detected. Can they detect and track in advance the motion of a car and light up the path of where someone walks or even runs? I mean, fundamentally, the sensors would be fast enough to do that. They actually do it in buildings quite a lot these days. So if you walk through a building, you'll find that all the lights go on in front of you. If you're walking through the middle of the night, all of a sudden the lights turn on magically, Mm. as if by magic. Um, And yes, the sensors, they basically work by looking, I think they tend to be near infrared. So it's a colour of light just beyond the red. It's basically a bit like red. And if they see any changes, so if any parts of of their image get brighter and darker, they think, oh, something's changed, someone's moved, so I'll turn the light on. Um, If you're doing it with the road, with how fast a car's moving, you'd probably have to have the sensor sort of three or four street lights down down the road turning on you oh, have to connect them all together yes, because yes. um the car will be moving fast enough but um that by the time that the signal had got to the, the street light it would be too late so um you'd have to sort of connect all the street lights together the other big problem you'd have with doing it with street lights is that they work especially the orange sodium street lights they're very very efficient lights they produce light using very little electricity compared to to other forms of lighting how they do take a long time to warm up i don't know if you've ever seen a street light as it's turning on it actually looks red yes yes and very very dim yeah um the reason is that they're they're called sodium lights and that's because they have sodium in them which is a metal Mm. and sodium you may have seen it at school it's kind of a gray metal and for it to give off light it's got to be a gas and so it takes a while for that sodium to heat up and basically boil and turn into a gas and mm. fill up the glass envelope. And then you basically pass a spark through that envelope, gives the sodium lots of energy. Um, and then it releases that energy in the form of a yellow light. 
and it takes sort of 5, 10, 15 minutes, depending on exactly the, the street light. It starts off with just a bit of neon in there, which is the, the red glow, and then for that to warm everything up and, bo- and boil off the sodium and fill the tube up with sodium. Um, and so I think if you had normal lights, then that would be it would work fine. It'd be kind of scary if you're driving along to only <laughs> to yeah. things changing all the time, and it might confuse <laughs> you. But for, in theory, it would work fine. Um, but with street lights, it, you'd have to have 15 minutes warning, and it, I don't think you would. You'd have to know where you were going around crossroads and things, mm. and it just wouldn't work. Yeah, he's wondering because domestic, uh, domestic detectors are now so cheap. The payback on saved electricity would not be very long. These could be installed when streetlights are replaced. You know, there might be something that will come up with that. I I think there's a few situations where if you had roads which aren't used very much at night, it might just be useful. You'd have to use a less efficient light, which turned on quicker to to make it work. Yeah. Uh, Gary has called in to say, Hi, I saw a thing saying that you could run your car on water. Is this true and possible from Gary? There are ways of running a car sort of on water. Um, There's one way whereby if you put electricity into water, you pass electricity through water, um, you split it into hydrogen and oxygen. Um, The the hydrogen is slightly positive and it will go to the negative electrode and the oxygen is slightly negative so it will go to the positive electrode and you get bubbles of hydrogen and oxygen coming off the water. It's called electrolysis. And if you collect that hydrogen, um, then that will burn in oxygen, releasing the energy you just put in. Um, so you could just put it into a normal car, car, car engine, run the car engine on the hydrogen. Um, that, that would work. Um, or you could use things which are call, called fuel cells, whereby you put the hydrogen into a, a it's kind of like a, a reverse battery. Mm. It's, it's, uh, it's a reverse the process you use to make it. Instead of um, putting in water and getting out hydrogen and oxygen, putting in water and electricity and getting out hydrogen and oxygen, you put in hydrogen and oxygen and get out water and electricity. So basically it's a really good way of storing energy because hydrogen is very, very light. So you, it's far, you can get far more energy in a kilogram of hydrogen than you could ever do with a battery. But it's only worth storing energy, and you always get less energy out than you put in. I don't know if he was meaning that, but you do sometimes. There are various people come up with various schemes which involve running your car on water in some way, shape, or form. Um, and I don't think you could, uh, without putting energy in the, in the first place, do something with the water. Water is water is a very very stable thing. It's very low energy, so anything which involves splitting the water and putting it back together in the car is you're going to have to use as much energy to split it as you get out by putting it back together again. Um, so you're not actually going to gain anything. And variously, people see people come up with cars which you put water in the, in the fuel tank and they're supposed to run perfectly, but as soon as you actually look at them closely, they suddenly don't work as well. Um, so wh- whether someone is confusing themselves or attempting to pull a fast one, I'm not sure. Uh, Mrs Cuthbert has called in and she says she's blind and she has a radio-controlled talking watch. When the time changes back or forwards an hour, the watch automatically updates. How does it do it? Well, the radio-controlled watches, they're basically like a fairly normal watch. To start with, you have a watch. Um, actually, most watches, which you, most electronic watches that you've got work on a little tiny crystal of, um, of actually silica quartz. Mm-hmm. And when you put electricity through that, it tends to vibrate. It vibrates at a very... It actually physically bends and vibrates, and, it, and that affects its electrical properties. It vibrates at a very, very precise frequency. Um, and then it, then you have a little piece of circuitry which counts it. You maybe get 10,000 10, counts every second. 
And then so it knows every time it counts 10,000 a second has gone past, it moves the clock on one second. Mm. Um, but they, they're not perfectly accurate. Sometimes you, they might not be made perfectly right. And, the, um, and then the temperature, if the temperature changes, it changes how fast they go. Mm. So after a while, they, get, they slowly get more and more wrong. So after maybe a, a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months, there'll be a few seconds out. Mm. Um, so what a radio control watch does is it actually has a little radio receiver in it. And I don't know if it's actually done at rugby anymore, but so, so you have you can get things called atomic clocks, which are far, far, far more accurate than this. Mm. They lose a second in um, thousands, if not millions, of years. Wow! Um, so really, really accurate. And so you take the output of one of these and you put it into a radio transmitter, which transmits what time the atomic clock thinks it is every know, every few minutes, every hour. I don't know the precise details. And so, and then your watch receives that information and says, "Ah, oh, I'm a bit wrong. I'll just set my clock right again, and it's all fine." Um, and so, if the um, so as long as your um, the radio transmitter knows about what, when the summer time and winter time is, and so the hour change, it can um, send out a message saying, instead of being ten o'clock, now it's nine o'clock. And so your clock will think, oh, I'm wrong, I'll put, put my clock back an hour and everything's fine. Mm. Um, so basically it's because it's being radio controlled by a, a base station, possibly in rugby, or, or I'm, I'm not entirely sure, I have a vague feeling they've moved it. Mm. Um, and then that, that will um, send a signal to your watch telling the time's changed. And you say your watch knows the time's changed and it can tell you the correct time. It's amazing, isn't it? Modern technology yeah. is quite mind-blowing sometimes. That is re- they're really quite fantastic. Now, then, there's another one here that Tony has said. Do things actually taste bland these days, or is it just his taste buds maturing? I don't know whether the food he's eating now is exactly the same as the food he used to, but I'm fairly sure that all your senses slowly get less um, acute as time goes on. Um, in the same way as your eyesight probably gets slightly slightly less good, you can't see things as well in the in the dark as you used to, and your hearing doesn't it slowly you slowly lose your hearing. The the nerve cells which are picking up things get slowly worn out and get less sensitive, so your hearing gets worse, particularly at the high frequencies end. I think your taste buds, your taste is the same. Um, in fact, it's less your taste buds; it's probably more your nose, because most of your, your sense of taste is actually a sense of smell. Because of course, yes, you can only actually taste. In fact, five tastes: the sort of sweet, sweet, bitter, sour, salty, and the thing called umami, which is kind of meatiness. Monosodium glutamate give, um, puts, triggers that sense very strongly, so it's the reason why they put it in Chinese meals because it makes them taste a lot more meaty because it triggers your, the taste buds in your tongue. Really? That. But all the rest of taste, all the subtleties in it are in your nose. And your nose, I mean, your taste buds will get less sensitive with age, and your sm- t- sense of smell will probably get less sensitive with age as well. So, yeah, things will taste more bland, I'm afraid. Um, another one here. Um, I have a question for Dave. What's the, far, the most far fetched or bizarre experiment? you've ever taken part in i've done a couple of slightly unusual ones i I built one a couple of months a month or so ago um which is electrocuting a gherkin electrocuting a gherkin yes if you put don't do this at home it's actually quite dangerous i've very carefully built an apparatus so i can't electrocute myself but if you put mains through a gherkin they glow orange exactly the same as a street light um, because there's salt, so, which has got sodium in it, inside the gherkin. And when you put mains across it, you get little sparks. And those sparks going through the sodium give it energy in the same way the street, street light does. And it makes it glow. And so you get bright orange sparks inside your gherkin. And it glows orange, exactly the same colour as a street light. That's it for this week. 
Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget, you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. 